Economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show. I'm producer Jason Dawes, and here with me is our host, Dr. Russ McCola, our undergraduate assistant, Jacob Caudill, and our Menard Family Philosophy and Ethics professor, Dr. Justin Clark. Ooh, you did pretty good with hitting that long intro in there. What did you think, Justin? Did that, did that sound pretty <laughs> That works for me. Yeah. Good, good job. All right. Well, we are delighted to have uh, Roger McKinney on as our guest today. Roger earned a bachelor's degree in theology at Baptist Bible College in Springfield, Missouri. Um, spent six months working in Iran uh, before the Shah fell. Uh, got another bachelor's degree in communications from University of Tulsa, worked in public relations, video productions, uh, earned a master's degree in managerial economics at the University of Oklahoma. So uh, you've kind of dabbled in a number of different areas. And uh, Roger reached out to me from my uh, article that uh, maybe you have seen listeners, if you're on our Twitter feed or anything, of our economists basically immoral. And I kind of gave an overview, and Roger uh, reached out to me uh, saying, uh, I guess you kind of like the piece and, and whatever, uh, wanted to reach out because he had done some writing in similar veins. And so one of his works was, uh, is God a Capitalist? And so I thought we'd uh, start with, with that. And uh, Roger, if you want to take it away from there and get us, get us into your thoughts here on some of what you wrote. Okay, well, I, I first got interested in the topic in the late 90s when reading Christianity Today. I felt like CT was basically promoting raw Marxism back in that time. <laughs> they as, probably as were. Christian economics. And, uh, and so, you know, I wondered, are they right? And so I began just reading about it, uh, trying to discover the origins of capitalism and after a while, I'd read so many books, I thought, you know, I got to start writing this stuff down. And, uh, and so it eventually turned into a book. The basic idea of it is I, I trace the origins of capitalism back to the theologians associated with the University of Salamanca, Spain in the 16th century. Okay. Uh, very interesting guys. They, uh, they were essentially, they were influenced by the Reformation, by Luther and the Reformation. They saw a lot of things wrong with the church that Erasmus and Luther had seen wrong, mm -hmm. but they decided they would try to reform it from within without uh, getting outside of the church. And so let me interject there for a little bit, just on giving our listeners who might not be in the know on some of this stuff, because we like to take baby steps with this faith and economics. So um, okay. first of all, with capitalism in general, uh, I like to usually reference back to Adam Smith, putting some thoughts together on, on markets and the benefits with the wealth of yeah. nations in 1776. And so yeah, that's where I started. Yeah. And that's where you started. Yeah. Okay. And then yeah. um, also with, uh, your Luther, of course, is our father of the Lutheran Church about 500 years ago, decided he didn't like the way the Catholics, who were then the only show in town, uh, were doing things and broke away from the Catholic Church, which happened to be around the time of the printing press, and uh, got the Bible in people's hands rather than having to filter it through the, through the bureaucracy of the Catholic Church at the time. 
so anyway, that, and Erasmus was in that time, and they had some uh, little disputes back and forth or, and tried to bring up some new thoughts in regard to Christianity. Is that a, mm-hmm. a fair little quick snap overview so far? Yeah, that's good, yeah. Okay. And at the University of Salamanca, one of, one of the things the church had been kicking around for centuries was the idea of what's a just price. And they mm-hmm. began to the uh, they began to along about the time of Aquinas they began to settle on the idea that a just price was one that was determined in a free market essentially they didn't yeah. say it that way but that that's that's pretty much what they meant right a price Until, that emerges right one that yeah. emerges from voluntary behavior among people as opposed to people would think that the price was set by the government or set by someone in power um, exactly, but that's not yeah. that's not the idea of markets and capitalism. Yeah, and, and until until the University of Salamanca, the, the church had pretty been pretty well been held captive by Aristotle's thinking on economics. Aristotle and Cicero, and they were very anti-merchants, anti-commerce, and their idea of a just price was that the values had to be identical, so that neither side profited. And so, when you get to the University of Salamanca. They didn't explode onto the scene. It had been building for a while. People, particularly in Venice, had theologians had been studying the market, trying to understand it more, because merchants were going to the uh, priests and the bishops and saying, "How can we keep from going to hell?" And, <laughs> uh, yeah, and because uh, basically, if you look at Cicero and, and uh, particularly Cicero, but a lot of the church fathers had basically said. The, the merchants can't. There's no way they can go to heaven <laughs> because right. of what they do. And and, and so, a lot of that a lot of that line of reasoning usually uh, stems from ignoring subjective value that that humans exactly. have. They place different values according to their preferences, rather than there's this one truth of value for a human being, or we're all the same. Uh, yeah, it's really yeah. where that line of reasoning was flawed usually. Yeah, and so. They, of course, what merchants would do when they got a little bit of money, they would buy titles of nobility and then land to to, to save them, to protect what they had earned. And then and they would give about half of it to the church in order to buy their way into heaven. Mm-hmm. But then you get to uh, Venice, you know, which is a big commercial place, and theologians start looking more deeply into how businessmen work, how business works, and so they can give better guidance to merchants. Then you get to the University of Salamanca and with the Reformation, and they basically toss out Aristotle and Cicero and start looking for themselves at how does business work. And, and, and from can, that, did they get into how uh, businesses are actually serving people in a sense? Um, oh, that, yes. that, that more of the service mindset, is that where that started to play in? Yes, and uh, that and, uh, uh, of course, the uh, subjective theory of value they came up with a, a really sound monetary theory, uh, international trade, just just a whole bunch of things. And when you, the, the problem was it was kind of scattered out over a lot of different books because they saw it as a subset of, of uh, ethic. And so they didn't see it as a separate field the way it became later. So it was scattered over thousands of pages. But fortunately, we've had people uh, put in the labor to go in and kind of distill the economic principles from these into a few books, like, not sure how you pronounce his name, but uh, Alejandro Chafuan. I don't know if you're familiar with him. We wrote Faith and Liberty. Mm. 
and and people who went before him, a lot of people. But a lot of people have been writing been writing about them since World War II, and uh, and just pulling out their economic principles. And so you can see that they came up basically with the principles of free markets. Well, and tied into that was limited government. They were among the first to come up with the idea that uh, the state doesn't have unlimited power. It's limited by natural law, which by that they meant God's law in the Bible. So I want to kind of push back on your... The respect for property, their subjective value. Right. I wanted to uh, question your title a little bit that I could see somebody thinking getting a little rubbed wrong. It might not be me, but I'm just playing devil's advocate here that uh, God is a capitalist. So how can God, who's the all-knowing, all-being, all-creating, be anything but God, I guess? Uh, I, I think I know where you're coming from, but I want to hear your words on that. God is a capitalist is the title of your book. It's got to make a buck. <laughs> One one of the reasons I, I chose that title is to be pr- provocative. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Justin called it to sell books, yeah. right? Yeah, well, I mean, God yeah. has to make the buck. Oh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, ten percent. <laughs> but uh, the other was, I really don't like books where the title is vague and you have to read the book to find out what the author's opinion is. So I thought I'll just give them my opinion up front. So yeah. if, if they don't like that, then they don't have to read it. And, yeah, yeah. But uh, the the idea, of course, people there's two different ideas of, of what a capitalist is. Most people think of a capitalist as a rich businessman. Yeah. And and, and that's not what I meant by it. By capitalist, I meant uh, somebody like Adam Smith who thinks of it as a system. And in the early part of the book, I go back to ancient Israel, which I think will surprise a lot of people, but the constitution of Israel before the kings was essentially libertarian. <laughs> and that, that's, that, it actually angers most people, but <laughs> when I say that. But, yeah, uh, Justin might be okay with that. I heard <laughs> <we got> him. <laughs> He's, well, uh, it, it boils down to how much, how much of the law did the government enforce? And what I show in the book is based on... Uh, some good scholarship and some ancient writings. Actually, there's not a whole lot to go on, but uh, the basic idea is that the government only enforced the civil laws. The Obviously, the ceremonial laws it didn't enforce, those were related to the temple. Mm-hmm. There was only 613 laws. It didn't, the, the government only consisted of courts. There was no human executive and there was no human legislature. No standing army and no taxes. There was a tithe, but that was only on agricultural produce, and that went to the temple to support the temple and the the priests and to uh, to help the poor. Mm-hmm. But that was the the only real governmental institutions they had were the courts, and the courts enforced God's six hundred thirteen laws. And only the civil laws in those. Now there, there are more. So, laws. so yeah. Let's. I was going to say, let's expand on that. So, first of all, my understanding of a ceremonial law was just uh, praying at a certain time of day or going to mass or whatever, right? I mean, right, it's the right. things that are part of the ceremony of of that the church had created. And the the um, sacrifices, and, sacrifices, and and food laws. And if the church and the government are one and the same, then kind of the law of the land is the ceremonial laws. 
Is that right, right. part of it? Yeah, that's what yeah. I thought. And so they were, they would be more of the enforcers of that, as opposed yes, to was, other they court systems. They would leave enforcement of the ceremonial laws to the priests, right. and the moral laws, such as the uh, every seven years they were supposed to forgive debts, and then every fifty years uh, forgive debts, and land was re- to return to the owner. Mm-hmm. Those are called moral laws, and they left those to God to enforce. So that the courts only enforced the civil laws, which basically had to do with property and uh, not and the right to life, liberty, and property. Hmm. I hadn't heard of very them leaving government. that to God to enforce, but I never really thought about it if they broke the law or not. I thought that would almost be a little more ceremonial law um, because they would. Uh, I did. I think we did a podcast on this before that um, some theologians have shown how the forgiveness of debts sounded like, oh, everybody gets a free-for-all, and it was really not respecting property rights. But in reality, they were lease arrangements, and so the term of the lease would terminate at the end of the seven years. And so everything was always factored on this seven-year basis, and so nothing was really forgiven per se. It's just that it allowed... It, it allowed them to maintain ownership of the land. So it was actually more in favor of property rights rather than disregarding them. Oh, exactly. Most people get those laws wrong. Yeah. Particularly Jubilee. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, capitalism, I guess a capitalist might believe in capitalism, but as you correctly stated, most people think a capitalist is just some rich businessman that's greedy and out to get people and pay people low wages and oppress them. And so I don't know if we can ever, the, the longer I go on, I'm not sure we can ever cl- reclaim that word very well. But um, who knows? Maybe if Bernie Sanders no, gets up there, it'll be the, the ultimate battle of socialism, democratic socialism versus capitalism. And maybe maybe people would actually start learning what it is. <laughs> you know, I, I, could, I could see that <laughs> well, uh, when it's in the presidential race, maybe none of people the other would actually words, pay attention. And none of the other words we use uh, upset socialists quite as much. Yeah, yeah. I like Hayek used uh, a system of competition. And I think that has a nicer ring the way I don't remember where he wrote that. But um, instead of using cap, I think it was Hayek anyway, that said uh, a system of competition would be is a better way to, you know, basically run societies that we have. But some people don't like competition. I know Uh, I ran into colleagues that are like, Oh, I hate competition. And so I'm not sure. What do you think, Justin? You look uh, like you're steering. I think, uh, you know, I'm fine with capitalism. Uh, a system of competition, <laughs> it's still going to make people angry. Uh, <laughs> and as the, it'll obfuscate the term even further. And the people that Hayek was arguing against, you know, when he had his big debate with Oscar Lang about hmm. managed socialism, they could just as well claim, oh, well, I, we're actually, our, our form was actually, you know, Socialized competition, too. So it is a system of competition. Socialized so, competition. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. We, we, we might as well choose a term that the opposition hates, and they're not going to use anyway, so they don't try to... That, that's good. That, they don't try to hijack it. I have a question that's kind of a little bit of inside baseball, but I know that you know Rothbard had written about the school of Salamanca, so I was wondering if your analysis... And I know you're sympathetic to, to Austrian economics, so I was wondering if your analysis is informed by Rothbard's or similar to or a little bit different from? Oh, yeah. Oh, no. I use uh, Rothbard extensively, his history, and it's very good. Yeah. And uh, who else? 
Marjorie, and I can't pronounce her name either. Uh, Neither can I. Yeah. Well, Murray Rothbard is, he's pretty, how should I say, radical libertarian oh, yeah. for the most part, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. he's, he's like, well, to and, each their own. And Schumpeter had, Schumpeter had some good stuff in his history of economic thought. He had some good stuff on the, the Salamancans. And uh, I actually have an article, uh, this latest article in Town Hall Finances, the Christian origins of Austrian economics. <laughs> and it's, it's pretty short, but it has good links to deeper stuff. Okay. All right. Well, that looks like a good place to take a break here. I think coming out of break, let's, uh, I'd like to press you a little bit more on how Christians could be better informed about capitalism to then, um, oh, how should we say, spar with their other friends on thinking that that's a bad term. Are there some tools we can give uh, fellow Christians to have a better dialogue and, and be more sympathetic to some of the, to the uh, intentions of, of other folks and really come back with a, a biblical-based lens? So we'll do that in 30 seconds. Institute is seeking a graduate assistant. Earn your MBA with full tuition by participating in fun and impactful events. For more information, check out the Gortney Institute website. To ask a question for our mailbag, send us an email at info at or call us at 785-248-2522. Hey Gortney, what are you doing today? The Gortney Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like that, contact Justin or Russ today. Welcome back. Okay, so Roger, we we left during the break here on a cliffhanger of uh, why Christians would want to uh, maybe know some of this capitalism stuff and hopefully remove some of the bad taste or at least have an understanding to be able to explain it to other people. So why why should we why should Christians be interested in some economics and what capitalism is? I think if uh, if you just in general what the Bible has to say about what is it's a good life for a Christian, particularly in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. God wants us to prosper. I don't want to promote prosperity gospel, but I believe God wants us to prosper if, you know, if we follow him and do the right things. In fact, Solomon has some uh, good investment advice in, in the books that he wrote. And so I think the I, what Christians should be aiming for is an independent life where they can do what God calls them to do, which to a large degree means having their own business or at least being financially well off, not just because they can live better and lead an affluent life, but they can help others as well. Yeah. I, I uh, mean, I might, it, I might push back a little bit on that pros on, on the prospering definition that way. I mean, to me as a LCMS Lutheran, 
if you know that you're you're good to go with God and you know where you're going when you die, there's not a lot to be worried about in life. And so the decisions that you make prayerfully, and so this is where I'd agree with you on a lot, by the way. I'm not trying to push back too hard here, but but the but the prosperity part comes from the comfort of having Christ in your life, knowing that all the crap you did in the past is forgiven. All the crap that you're going to do in the future, the things done and undone, it's all it's all been done. You know, Christ stands in the way. And so to me, prosperity is a function of truly understanding that and that you can live with pretty humble means of maybe not a super high income, uh, but being in the in the right way with your faith. Whatever comes your way, you you can you can prosper from it. You can kind of take the lemon and make lemonade, if you will, or whatever, because uh, you've got things kind of figured out on that side. So that, that that's my ideas on prosperity. Um, so there's, I guess, a little less focus on maybe material things, although I, I'm not against that either, so don't get me wrong. I'm a Dave Ramsey guy, so I, I, uh, I, I get all that. But I, I think the, the root of it, we don't ever want to look at the – the material things of our life or our maybe fleeting happiness or something as, as somehow the end that, oh, exactly. yeah, you know, yeah. that, agree, that, that yeah. we're chasing that or that it's a sign that God is showing us favor because let's face it. I mean, we all know that oh. some awful things happen to rich people, some awful things happen to poor people. Um, so that, yeah. that is all across the board. And I think having the mindset of, of your faith and knowing that everything's going to be okay, ultimately, uh, allows you to prosper. Oh, that's the greatest prosperity. Yes, that's that's true, and yeah, and that has to come first. The material has to be material prosperity has to be way down the list. But if we're going to help the poor and uh, and further missions, things like that, you know, it takes money. It takes money to keep our churches going and and keep the missions projects going, and uh, and provide for our families that, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But that and I think understanding economics, the reason I wrote the book, Financial Bull Riding, was because I could see the relationship between the stock market and the business cycle, the Austrian business cycle. And to use that to to let people know that if you understand the Austrian business cycle, you can have a lot more confidence in investing in the stock market. It's not going to make you rich. Uh, Nobody ever got, I don't, or few people got rich investing in the stock market. Most people get rich by uh, building a business, growing a business. But the stock market is one of the better places to put your money, mainly because manipulation of the money supply by the Fed. The stock market reacts almost immediately to uh, money creation by the Fed, as we've seen in the last six months. Whenever the Fed decided to start printing money again, the stock market hasn't quit going up. And but there's not a one-to-one correlation. It's it's a lot more vague than that. But it's something if you're aware of cycles, uh, because most investors, particularly individual investors, they forecast linearly. They they think the good times are going to last forever, and then they think the bad times are going to last forever. What we need to do is think in terms of cycles. And if you think in terms of cycles, then you can you won't necessarily beat the market, but you won't get beat to death by the market. Yeah, I, I, yeah. Even the best uh, Austrians, uh, the best, uh, the best of anybody, is no good at it. At the end of the day, the, the efficient market hypothesis oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. really is in there. 
that there's no yeah. uh, predictable pattern as far as the timing of the ups and downs. But I think when you're in a period of uh, exuberance or whatever um, that was fueled by uh, possibly money changes or whatever, um, whether it was by government or by other animal spirits, if we, I, I hate to use that word with, if we're talking Austrian, but you know, if we have uh, investors getting crazy, but that might be just because of things that the, have been done by the money supply is the Austrian argument, I think, right? So, yeah. Well, there's surely just a virtue too, uh, independently of the fact that you can make money, keep your money, uh, keep your assets more valuable. I mean, we, uh, we live in a world that is financialized. And so to the extent that you want to believe or seek out the theory that most accurately predicts and understands the, worry, the world in which you live, that is something that's surely desirable to most people. Mm -hmm. Right. To have an accurate well, understanding. And another example, I don't think I, I got into it in, in my book, but uh, because I think I learned of it later, but the cycles in land, not just real estate, but the cycles in ranch land and farmland in the central part of the U.S. from Texas up through Nebraska. I learned this from the, the Kansas City Federal Reserve. They follow the business cycle very, very closely. They, in 2008, prices tank, and then from 2008 to 12, uh, in Oklahoma, the price of farmland increased 30% a year. And then in 2018, they peaked and started back down. And today, uh, the prices are lower than they were in 2008. Very, very closely following the business cycle. All right. So you just, in, in terms of learning some economics, I don't think the average person, for me, economics is always about thinking about behaviors and, and the interaction of markets and how you engage the world from a kind of a Christian standpoint mm -hmm. that, that you yeah. get a lot better insights. Um, I wouldn't even go so far that the important thing is learning cycles and kind of, you know, monitoring your wealth, yeah. but rather just <laughs> a, a little more global picture of uh, how you handle raising your family and making decisions about college and long-term and retirement and all of that stuff. Um, I wanted yeah, to get into, yeah. you had some thoughts on envy being uh, an important thing to uh, to be thinking about related to decision-making. What were you thinking with envy? Well, I ran across a reference, a good, a positive reference to a book by a guy named, uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, uh, Helmut Schack, who wrote Envy, a Theory of Social Behavior in the 1960s. In one of Mises' book, Mises highly recommended it, so I got it and read it. And uh, believe me, it's a depressing book. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I got through it. it. took me a year to get through it. But basically, he shows the connection between envy and economics. And his essential idea is that the degree that a society succumbs to envy determines their Determines their what? Their institutions. Institutions, uh, okay. Particularly their economic institutions. And the general idea is most people, and, and he makes this statement, envy has dominated the world and did dominate the world until roughly around 1500 when Christianity was able to suppress it enough in Western Europe so that people could innovate and invest and uh, reap the rewards of their investment. And that's what, that's essentially what caused the Industrial Revolution. Hmm. 
was the suppression of envy. Oh, boy, that's a loaded one. I'm not sure I agree with that or not. Well, we should probably <laughs> define envy for yeah, yeah, one of the things cool. that I don't think most people know. Yeah, why don't you put envy is, well, uh, Oh, that's, that's true. The uh, difference between envy and jealousy. Yeah. And jealousy is that envy is acquisitive and jealousy is actually defensive traditionally. So like the, the dragon jealously guards his treasure. Okay. Envy is when you want something that somebody else has. Oh, I get it. Yeah. Okay. That's not jealousy. Right. right. So, right. yeah. Well, I think, uh, uh, Shek's, uh, of course what Shek does is he goes through the, from Aristotle to modern times, what people have thought envy was. And then he goes into the Bible a little bit and believe it or not, I have found a six volume series on the evil eye, which is, I don't know how somebody could write that, but it's uh, the evil eye is the traditional way of expressing envy. Mm. And uh, but uh, in the West, particularly in the U.S., we have made it a joke, and we have pretty much done away with it. Most you know, people find it easy to say, "Oh, I envy you doing that." Well, no, we really don't. And how would you that. how would you say envy and coveting work? The uh, well. The way Sheck defines it, envy is resentment. It was, it's the worst of the traditional seven deadly sins. And it's, it's a desire to see somebody else fall. Uh, a good story, I think, that, that explains it the best is he talks about in Eastern Europe, there's a, uh, a joke, a folktale about an angel visits a peasant and says, you've been a good peasant. Uh, so I'll give you one wish. What what would you like? And the peasant says, well, my neighbor has a goat. And the angel says, oh, sure, you want me to give you a, a goat? And he said, oh, gracious, no, I want you to kill my neighbor's goat. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that, that's envy. The The person who envies doesn't benefit uh, from his envy. That's why it's such a... Uh, it's, so uh, envy, if, the way you're describing it, it sounds like it'd be worse than coveting. Coveting would be... Yeah, wanting that goat and maybe starting to scheme a way to get the goat. To get this it, conception, yeah, it's yeah. not even acquisitive; it's destructive. Okay. It's destructive. Yeah. Yes, Re- resentment is a good, a good uh, synonym, I think, for it. Okay. He goes through how he shows how in primitive tribes that they were dominated and their cultures were organized around envy, and then he goes into you know Eastern Europe and. And essentially, he says, communism, not communism, socialism, the power behind socialism is envy, and that socialism essentially elevates envy to a virtue. <laughs> okay, yeah, because, uh, so Bernie Sanders is envious, you're saying. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have a joke, because I've heard a different version of that, a uh, similar joke, where the the person gets a wish, and it's whoever's granting them the wish says, now, just so you know, uh, I'll give you whatever you want, but what I give to you, I'm going to give twice to your neighbor. Ah, and yeah. he thinks about it, and he says, <laughs> yes, okay, yes, I've heard that one. Right. Yes, Take good. out my eye. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I, I think all of that plays into income inequality issues. Yes, it does. So yes. my, you know, my version would usually be that capitalism does the best for the poor, in some cases, it might cause a greater wedge between the poor and the rich, but the poor will be better off than had we had things more equal, so to speak. So if you go to oh, Iran, yes, yes. they have a whole bunch of income equality. They're all 
dirt poor subsistence living, or we had a lot of equality for the first uh, uh, thousand, two thousand years of, of history. Everybody was equally dirt poor and subsistence level living. And so oh, yeah. what yeah. capitalism had done is allowed uh, wealth to be created, possibly unequally. But if we take that bottom part, the poor of the poor, or the ten bottom 10%, bottom 20%, those folks are better off. Uh, the last article we just wrote on Chile, which we did a podcast on, was highlighting that, that they were rioting yeah. in, in Chile. But we did a quick little analysis of, of how well off the poor were in Chile versus their neighboring uh, countries, and they were all better off. <laughs> and oh, so yeah. there hasn't yeah. been a lot of but, uh, good evidence on <laughs> on uh, connections between income and equality. But I think the the moral story is it all boils down to envy and maybe it's jealousy or some combination of of coveting and other things. But uh, it's not being content with what you got, which I think you have. Uh, back to my comments on prospering, if you if you can be content with what you have and know that you're doing okay relative to where you were before. Um, I'm not trying to make it disappear because it's never going to disappear, right? <laughs> the sinful nature, we have to right, learn to right. deal with envy and jealousy and income inequality or whatever. Deal with it, however that, whatever that means. Yeah. But I think we can sit here till we're blue in the face saying, no, no, you shouldn't feel that way. And you're not going to get anywhere with it because they're still going to feel yeah. that, <laughs> hey, it's not fair that that person's richer than me or has higher income or yeah. whatever. I don't think we're going to be able to escape it. Well, but, and Sheck, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, but maybe we can learn to deal with it better. Well, what, what Sheck points out is that only Christianity has been able to deal with it. And, and it doesn't do away with it. It just suppresses it uh -huh. enough that uh, you can have economic development. Yeah. And that, that's his point. And I think, yeah, what sort of systems help curb evil better than others? Some, I yeah. think, do that better than others to put up the bumpers. Or the... And if you, I have on Town Hall too an article that I wrote to, I think last year about John Rawls and his his book on justice. I can't think of the name of it, but if you pay careful attention to what he says in there, basically he's uh, it's based on envy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's elevating envy. It's assuaging envy at, at the best. What book was it? Justin Justin's the Theory of Justice. Theory of Justice. Yes. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. I don't know if I agree with your interpretation, but... What's uh, your interpretation? That's, that's uh, Well, Rawls permits inequalities so long as they make the least... The poor better off. Better that's off. right. That's more of his um, angle, yeah. right? Was, so uh, yeah, I think there's yeah charitable or uncharitable ways to read that. And uh, I mean, one of the things about a theory of justice is that it's so vague in the actual policy proposals oh. that, uh, that you can run with it any direction. <laughs> yeah. And the people who do tend to run with it, tend to run with it in the socialist, more direction. socialist um, rationale. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I think it's easy yeah. to run with it with the capitalist rationale, the way I just illustrated it. Right? Uh, if, it's, if capitalism brings the poor up, then that's actually consistent. There's with a reading story. of it, which is consistent with what you said yeah. about, uh, you know, yeah. But yeah, I so, can see that. Yeah. Yeah. But the, I mean, the fact is there, most people don't all, make that reading because if you want to advocate for, you know, a free market system, they usually just choose a philosopher who is more explicitly free market mm -hmm. rather than trying to read this trying to pull it out of the bags. And, yeah, 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 so, uh, so your reading yeah. is the, the 
more. Didn't Rawls have other pieces though later of articles or something that supported it more so one way or the other? Uh, he wrote a book later called The Law of Peoples, which tried to apply it to international relations. But Rawls was not a public intellectual. He didn't speak publicly. He was very shy. Okay. All right. Well, we're coming near the end here, Roger. I wanted to give you time for any other things. Uh, I, I would like to maybe, maybe even a future podcast, get into your Austrian economics. We talked a little bit about it, but um, uh, that and Christian thought, um, I think we certainly touched on it. But uh, we'll we'll try to get some references to your books here in our show notes so that when people uh, listen to the podcast, Jason can have some, some things posted. So, um, so do you got uh, any closing comments for us? I think uh, too, uh, just on the idea of envy, uh, the book covers some, some work by a guy named uh, Geert Hofstede that on, um, he looks internationally at the differences between cultures and one of the things that really stands out, he, he doesn't actually express it this way, but it comes out pretty much the same way, is how envious the rest of the world is. The U.S. is the least envious, followed by uh, Western Europe, and then the rest of the world is just consumed with it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, yeah, I suppose it, there's a couple, maybe a couple different ways. Envious of other cultures, since we're kind of the richest in that sort of thing, we wouldn't maybe have envy against other nations per se, but within our country, there seems to be plenty of envy, I think. Well, maybe not in the sense that you just helped me formalize it, but we don't necessarily want harm on our neighbor because of what they have, if that's, if I understood the definition. I think he's right that, you know, envy is growing, but there there used to be a saying, and I can't remember who said it, but that uh, in America, there's no real class warfare because the poor don't think of themselves as poor they think of themselves as momentarily poor on their way to being rich. Mm. So uh, when there is yeah. a high, high mobility between yeah. uh, income, then uh, envy doesn't arise right. as much. Poor is only the state I happen to be in right now. Yeah. But uh, later yeah. I'll be I'll moving be, up. Yes. Yeah, moving. Okay. Well, and to the, as Sheck points out, uh, the love your neighbor as yourself command in Christianity makes envy be, be really evil. And it's something up until recently Christians yeah. have done. But as the, as the U.S. becomes less Christian, you, you can see envy growing rapidly. Yeah. All right. Well, that's, that's great. Uh, so on behalf of uh, the Gortney Institute here at Ottawa University, I'd like to thank you all for listening. And thank you, uh, Roger, for uh, your insights today. And we'll have in our show Thanks notes. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. Um, we'll have in our show notes some links to, to your books so our listeners can check those out as well. And so um, if you guys like what you're hearing, please give us a five-star rating, and that'll help us raise in the ranks and reach out to more and more folks. And uh, you can tell your friends about the great stuff on the Faith and Economics podcast. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks. <laughs>